Hello, and welcome to the first in our podcast series looking at the approach of global financial regulators to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing. I'm Sarah Cody, a counsel in Linklater's financial regulatory practice focusing on contentious regulatory work. I'm Gavin Lewis, a partner in our dispute resolution team. Financial regulators around the world have been focusing on the role of culture in reducing the risk of conduct failures for some time now. Whilst this has mostly centred on an assessment of conduct in the performance of roles in the workplace, some regulators, particularly the FCA and PRA, have begun to question the extent to which misconduct outside the scope of formal workplace roles should play in assessing the suitability of those working in financial services. They're doing so as part of their focus on firm culture and firm purpose. This area of misconduct has become known by the shorthand of non-financial misconduct, or NFM, in the UK. We've recently published a review of the role non-financial misconduct is playing in the assessment of suitability of individuals to work in financial services. Our review is available on the Linklater's website and a link comes with the link to this podcast. It addresses the position of 12 key financial centres around the world and should be of interest to people in senior management positions, legal and compliance teams and anyone with responsibility for whistleblowing programmes. In this first podcast, we're going to give you an introduction to that publication and look at some of the reasons why some regulators have begun to focus on non-financial misconduct as part of their assessment of individual suitability and the increasing importance of effective whistleblowing programmes. So let's start by explaining what we mean when we refer to non-financial misconduct. So there is no regulatory or global standard definition of NFM. So this can make it quite difficult when you're trying to establish global common denominator standards for firms, practices and procedures. There are various policy statements from the FCA with examples of what this type of misconduct includes. So it began with a focus on the issue of sexual harassment in the context of the Me Too movement a couple of years ago. So the FCA considers that sexual harassment and other forms of NFM can amount to a breach of its conduct rules, which include the requirement to act with integrity. So in January 2020, the FCA wrote to wholesale insurance firms in a Dear CEO letter commenting that how a firm handles NFM, including sexual and racial discrimination, harassment, victimisation and bullying, is indicative of a firm's culture. So the FCA views both a lack of diversity and inclusion and NFM as obstacles to creating an environment in which it's safe to speak up, the best talent is retained, the best business choices are made, and the best risk decisions are taken. The FCA's Director of Supervision, Investment, Wholesale and Specialist Division gave a speech last September explaining that the key drivers of culture are people, policies, and in particular, the types of behavior that are incentivized and disincentivized within firms. So this extends to a broader set of considerations, including progression, promotion, recruitment, diversity and inclusion, speak-up culture, and psychological safety. So it's difficult for firms to determine how to deal with staff facing these issues, where either the conduct is less serious, where it takes place outside of the office, or where it's not connected to any regulated activity. So the more significant the offence, the more difficult the position for firms is, notwithstanding the location in which it occurred. So in our publication, we approach NFM as a misconduct that is not directly related to the performance of an individual's role, but that might have an impact on both the integrity, fitness and propriety of the staff member concerned under the relevant regulations and on the culture of a firm more broadly. And it's through that lens that we look at these questions in our guide across 12 major financial centres. But when you're considering NFM, there's still a fine line in terms of what amounts to respect for a conduct in private life. 
An English High Court case decided last November is a pretty good example of some of the more difficult issues faced here. Although it's outside the world of financial services, the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal had ruled that a solicitor who'd engaged in consensual sexual activity with a junior colleague outside the office following a firm social function had failed to act with integrity and undermined public trust in the profession. On appeal, the English High Court disagreed. Although it conceded that the conduct might be viewed as inappropriate or even wrong, it concluded that activities in a person's private life should only impact on an assessment of a solicitor's integrity and the extent to which they've maintained trust in the profession, where that conduct realistically touched on the practice of their profession in a way that engaged the relevant standards or codes of behaviour. Put more simply, conduct outside of work needs to impact on the ability to uphold the standard required in the relevant professional context. Obviously, financial regulators have their own sets of rule books and professional standards, but this case shows some of the difficulties regulators are likely to face in this area. So why should this concern you? What impact can non-financial misconduct in a financial services firm have from the regulator's perspective? Is culture what we tolerate? The tolerance or even encouragement by a senior manager of a culture of bullying or harassment involving junior or new staff members in their business area would clearly have a direct impact on the work environment experienced by those staff. This would then arguably be relevant to a regulator's assessment of the senior manager's fitness and propriety. This type of culture might also discourage staff from challenging or reporting examples of misconduct that they encounter within the firm. Non-financial misconduct might also occur outside of a work environment, for example, during after-work drinks or supervision in a working-from-home environment in a way that continues to reverberate once people are back in the office. So what role is whistleblowing playing here? Regulators have recognised the importance of ensuring that individuals within firms have mechanisms for reporting concerns and are protected from any potential negative impact of doing so. NFM is often reported through whistleblowing channels. Regulators are introducing rules here and they are using whistleblowing as a bellwether to scrutinise firms' broader culture. There is a clear distinction between a speak-up culture and whistleblowing. There's a big difference between performance issues and innocent errors of judgment or a failure in skill or training that should be aired in a healthy speak-up culture, an actual misconduct that should have disciplinary consequences and be the proper subject of a whistleblowing report. Whistleblowing is important for misconduct, but applied too widely to performance issues in particular, it can have a detrimental impact, creating a blame and investigation-led culture. So in the UK, we've seen the regulators investigate and take action against firms where shortcomings in their whistleblowing systems and controls have been identified. Most recently, we saw an insurance firm have requirements imposed to improve and report annually on their handling of whistleblowing complaints. An investigation of the thoroughness of the approach to investigation of misconduct is a really effective way of assessing a firm's culture. So it's interesting to consider the approach of national regulators to assessing suitability as part of their focus on culture. For example, do all regulators have individual accountability regimes? Well, in all of the 12 jurisdictions we reviewed, there was some form of a regime for assessing and monitoring individuals working in financial services. Now, these tended to have one or more of three specific elements, a focus on directors and senior management, some form of F&P requirements, and or an external verification of suitability. 
None of the jurisdictions we surveyed had explicit rules governing non-financial misconduct, save for the regulatory guidance on the point seen in the UK. Generally, the conviction of a sufficiently serious criminal offence would result in a finding that someone was not fit and proper. A broader focus on non-financial misconduct tended to be found in places where the focus on culture was strongest and where a comprehensive individual accountability regime had been put in place. And this in turn tended to correlate broadly with the places that were hit harder by the global financial crisis in 2008, so the UK, Hong Kong and Singapore. Late last year, the ECB argued in a speech that EU national regulators should play a more intrusive role in assessing the quality of board appointees. It voiced concerns about fragmented national frameworks for assessing fitness and propriety across the EU. So what are the challenges that firms face in dealing with these different approaches from national regulators, particularly firms with a global footprint? Um, the threshold for individuals being found to have engaged in non-financial misconduct is going to vary between different countries. It might be difficult for senior managers in some countries to appreciate this difference in the potential impact that the conduct might have, or even why certain issues might require further investigation when in their own location that might not be the case. Our report looks at three case studies to illustrate how an incident of non-financial misconduct might have very different consequences from a regulatory perspective for the individuals concerned, depending on the country where it occurs. Establishing a common denominator in firms' policies and procedures for these conduct and consequential disciplinary issues does require some careful thought. The first case study in our report is based on the UK case involving a managing director caught evading his train fare in the commute into London which was a criminal offence. In the UK, that would and did result in a prohibition by the regulator on the grounds that the individual was no longer fit and proper. That might also be a possible outcome in both Hong Kong and in Singapore. But for instance, in France and Japan, it would not have any regulatory consequence. And in the US, it might potentially result in disciplinary action by FINRA if it had the necessary jurisdiction. So there's a wide range of possible outcomes. This might also impact the approach to investigating these issues in a global firm, and we'll come on to address that in the next episode. Most countries we surveyed have ways for assessing the fitness and propriety of at least some staff within regulated firms. So there's certainly potential for these regimes to be expanded or interpreted to cover non-financial misconduct to the extent that this might impact an individual's integrity or the working culture of their firm. Some regulators who aren't already doing so might start to take a broader approach to what they consider relevant to assessments of suitability. This might result in a greater willingness to consider non-financial misconduct in the workplace in this sort of context. However, many of the fitness and properness regimes that we surveyed tend to focus uh, at the level of board members and directors. Few of them impose specific regulatory conduct on obligations on the wider population of staff, for instance, in a way that the senior managers regime does in the UK. Many of these regimes remain focused on financial misconduct in a narrower sense and on the impact of certain criminal convictions on integrity of regulated staff. Some difficult questions about what should and should not be considered relevant to any suitability assessment when looking at an individual's behaviour in their private life remain to be answered, particularly when regulators around the world investigate individual misconduct and decide on the proper scope of their remit. If you're interested in reading more, you can find our full publication on the topic on linklaters.com.
Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.